Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Banking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, well, a few podcasts ago, we asked why is money moving so much slower these days? The last few decades have seen a rapid slowdown in the velocity of money. Well, we wanted to revisit this quickly to spend more time looking at how the role of debt has been pivotal in this slowdown. And if that debt wasn't there, would the velocity increase? And therefore, if you believe Milton Friedman's equation, the economy would prosper accordingly. We'll look at all that today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So let's start with that equation from Milton Friedman, the model that MV equals PY, money supply, and its velocity, the M and V, equals the overall price level. P and real GDP. Why? So lots of money moving quickly can help GDP to grow, but it can also push prices up and cause inflation. But uh, but you, Steve, said in that last podcast that we need to factor debt into that equation because otherwise the formula doesn't stack up. And I guess that makes sense because the money supply has been up and down. The velocity of money has been slowing for decades, and there doesn't seem to be any correlation with inflation or economic growth. So is that why this formula has been largely ignored? Because it doesn't make logical sense to follow it because it's been disproven as it currently stands. Well, it's been it's been leaving out a major causal factor. It's obviously going to go wrong at some point. If you mm. leave out the role of credit as part of demand, uh, then your prediction of what's going to happen when the money supply changes is going to be massively wrong. And my absolute favourite, and I would, if anybody is uh, working in a newspaper library in Australia can help me out, I would love to have them help me because in 1987, uh, back when the, the whole real business cycle model was dominant and people still believe in monetarism as well, a couple of Macquarie University economists published a a large article, like a one or two thousand word article in the Australian Financial Review, predicting that the rate of inflation in, uh, the, the, they'll start with their logic first, they'll end up with their prediction. They said because the, the, the money supply rose by 30% during 1987, and because the rate of real economic change was 3%, therefore the rate of inflation in 1988 would be 27%. They were wrong by 28%. <laughs> it was actually minus right. 1%. Okay, so what they did was simply take that whole argument about the rate of inflation being, being, just being exactly equal to the increase in money supply minus the rate of real economic growth. Uh, they didn't understand credit at all. They didn't understand that credit was going entirely into driving up asset prices. In that same year, they'd ignored the fact that um, share prices rose, Australian share prices rose 80% between January and October of 1987. That's where the borrowed money was going into. And then when the, uh, when the, when the crash hit and prices on the stock market fell by 25% in one day in, in Australia, uh, that was the end of that particular bubble. And that demand just disappeared from the economy. People weren't borrowing any money anymore. So the rate of growth of the money supply also plunged, but their inflationary expectations are completely dashed. I would love to get a copy of that article. I had it, I cut it out and I lost 
lost so, it. But you, by adding credit in there, you're basically just extending money supply. And you're saying money yeah. supply is, I mean, the amount of money around is the money that's in, in supply plus the credits that's, that's being offered to people. I mean, that, plus the that, that which could yeah, be a definition yeah. of money supply. I mean, the, the reason I mentioned that was because we got one comment from, uh, we had a few comments actually from the, uh, the first podcast when we looked at slow money. Mark Gorvin from uh, Money Systems Transparency Alliance. Okay. says, uh, you know, the money, velocity of money says it's just a wealth transfer. We're measuring the value in and out of each other's accounts, uh, which somehow makes Fisher's velocity of money a misnomer. So he's basically saying, if you want to, be, Steve Keen, if you want to rebuild econ- economics, you need to define basic notions and misrepresentations, starting with a logical definition and specification of money itself, which has never formally nor logically been defined or specified, a fact that is simply unacceptable, he says. So there we are. He's, I'm glad he got that off his chest. But I mean, it's, it, does get, it does get down to that. What, what is the definition of money? Uh, he's saying, "Let's." I mean, I think what he's saying is, "Let's forget about the idea that money is is hard stuff. It's money transferring in and out of accounts, which makes perfect sense." But I mean, but if yeah. that's the case, would, wouldn't you also be including credit in that? So, because some of that, which gets to my point, is is a definite. You know, are, are we adding credit into that equation, or are we really defining what the money supply is? Surely, if we said the money supply is uh including that factor because it's expanding yeah. the money supply it's money that wasn't there before um the, 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 it's a very important point that we haven't properly defined what money is in terms of the general mainstream economic theory there's no real definition of money in the mainstream it's just this pieces of paper that fall out of helicopters uh when the best definition of money was done by augusto graziani and that's what i i think that that his definition of money is what really has let me build my Minsky software and the whole analysis of money that I've done since then. And that is that money, first of all, can't be a commodity uh, because if you say money is a commodity, all you're saying is we're going to identify a particular commodity in a barter economy as the numeraire, and you're still working fundamentally in a barter economy. So in that sense, money can't be a commodity. It can't be backed by a commodity. It must be a pure token. Now, if you have a pure token, then the danger is the person who creates the token can use the token to go shopping on their own front if they wish to. And that uh, means that it it can't be something which gives the person who creates it an automatic right of seniorage. Um, I'm talking in terms of a definition of a, of a pure credit economy here because, of course, the government does get that right of seniorage uh, in its own, own realm. And also that... It can't be money. Can't be simply credit in the sense that uh, if it's credit, credit is a promise to pay. And it can't be if you have a promise. If I promise to buy the your microphone off you, which because I managed to leave mine back in back in London uh, or Amsterdam, if I promise to buy your microphone off you, and I'll say I'll pay you back in X weeks, there's still an obligation between the two of us, a credit mm. obligation, and therefore it's it's not it's not actually money because money is something you hand over as a final settlement of a transaction and credit promise to pay alone is not the final transaction so what Brasigani said money has to be given those conditions is the promise to pay the third party which both parties themselves accept as being a the transfer of the promise being a complete uh, com- a completion of the transaction between them so I want to buy the microphone off you and I give you a promise to pay of a bank to me because I've got, you know, $1,000 in a bank account. And I can say, here's, I'm transferring the bank's promise to pay me $1,000 on demand if I wish to you. 
then that is money on transferring the promise of a trusted third party. And that fundamentally is what money is. The promises to pay of a trusted third party in our current monetary system are the banks. Now, so that's that's the definition of money that I think is quite valid. And the fact that once you, I mean, and the velocity comes into this because the quicker you pay it, the quicker uh, whoever's receiving that money can get out and spend it again. Yeah, there's a turnover of that amount of money, but there's also in that case because the banks can add because the level of banks' promises are not limited, the banks can promise more money, and that then becomes part of demand directly. Because my analogy has always been effectively mentioned a stream going past. If you want to measure the the volume of water in the stream, you take the cross-sectional area of the river and multiply it by the velocity of the water flowing through. So the cross-section is like the quantity of money and the velocity is rate of circulation or turnover of that money. That's your VM equation. But at the same time, you've got a pump just before you measure the amount of money, which is um, either pumping money, water into the uh, river or sucking it out. That's your new, that's your change in money, change in water in that analogy, precisely equal to the change in money. So the total amount is not just the velocity of money uh, times the amount of money, it's velocity of money times the amount of money plus new money creation, which then when it's created, it flows with the same speed as the rest of the stream. So I'm still having difficulty here understanding what is the difference when a, a bank issues credit and is creating uh, creating money. Why is that any different to just calling it the money supply in Friedman's model? Well, it's because Z times M doesn't give any room for M to grow. Okay. It's if you if you think about I make an analogy with our own human bodies. You started off as a little bloke of weighing about three or four kilos. Okay, your bone mm. structure was was generally speaking exactly the same as your bone structure today. How did you grow? The answer is there was a creation and destruction of bone tissue going on all through your life. Your body was destroying bone structure and creating new bone structure so that over time there was a change in the amount of bone structure. So I wanted to measure you as a as a point in time. I would just say your skeleton is X. But if I want to actually accurately model you as a dynamic process, your skeleton is X plus DX DT, whereas DX DT is the rate of change, rate of creation of new bone structure. Over time till you're about 60 or so, that's a, that's a positive. At a certain point it sends a negative and you start shrinking again. So... You, if, if you just have the V times N, it's a static view of the nature of the economy, which would work if the economy is not changing in size. It is changing in size, and the monetary system changes inside rate exactly equal to the rate of change of debt. But I mean, we are we are allowing for change in the money supply, but you're saying it should be we we should be allowing for overall growth in the economy as part of that. Well, that's you're what, saying that's it's a static an, equation for for changing economy. That's what enables that change in the size of the economy as well, because yeah. again. There's, there hasn't been an economy which has grown in physical output while it's been shrinking in the money supply. Uh, the money, because we're, okay, capitalism is, is driven as a monetary-driven system, Keynes Marx is like the, the, the driving force in capitalists is the desire of capitalists to earn a profit. And that's taking a certain amount of money and turning it into more money, MCM plus, as Marx put it. And that requires, when you look at it at the aggregate level, because you accumulate more money, you have to have a growth in the money supply as well. And again, to get a growing economy, that also uh, the, the, the monetary system has to accommodate that. And that's what we've seen. There's, so the total monetary demand, and I get this coming out of my Minsky models as well, it's the velocity of money times the stock of money plus the change in debt, which is identical to the change in money. So it's V times M plus the MDT. Right, and that change in debt uh, is is obviously is a bad thing in that it it slows c- 
consumption. So we know if, if that debt level gets too high, then people get uh, get worried, and so they start spending less. Well, that's that's the that's the trap we get caught in. When you rely upon credit credit based money system alone, um, then there's a couple of real traps into the economy, which conventional thought doesn't get its head around because it doesn't see the role of money in the first place. So if you, and this is why I think that it's so important to think in the way that accountants do about uh, about net net financial worth. Uh, your, your net worth can include, you know, um, masses and masses of commodities you can accumulate over time. But your monetary worth is assets minus liabilities equals your equity. And when you have a pure credit economy, if you have economies, no government sector, just private banks, private money and private money users, then uh, because some, well, your, person, your asset is somebody else's liability, your assets minus liabilities equals equity calculation has an exact mirror somewhere else in the economy where if your equity is positive, that of the other entity or group's equity is negative. The sum of all equity at the financial level is zero. So if you then inject banks into the economy, banks must maintain positive equity. If you create a bank by getting capital together, money together, uh, getting a banking license, wherever that might imply in the pure credit system I'm talking about, if imagine you've got a a sort of a licensee of banks. So a bank starts with assets minus liabilities equals equity as greater than zero. That means the remainder of the non-bank economy in the aggregate has negative equity. Now, at the same time, we're all trying to achieve positive equity. Um, that is not possible. So that desire to get positive equity, one way that people try to do that is by Two, two ways. One of they try to speculate. They buy assets and lever up the price of assets, and then they calculate their equity to include the value of the monetary value of the assets they own. And in doing that, they they multiply the marginal price, the price of the last transaction that was done with the, that particular financial asset. They multiply that marginal price by the total sum of assets outstanding, and that's garbage. That is an error, in the sense of. Uh, you, if you tried to liquidate all the assets, that marginal price, the marginal price would fall to zero. But we do that and we believe we've got positive equity, but it's based on an asset bubble. Uh, well, then we get caught in the Minsky world. Or if people try to save money to get positive equity, uh, their attempt to save money, as we explained in another podcast, actually reduces GDP by precisely the amount that they reduce their expenditure. So we have a whole number of traps in a pure credit economy. And this is partly why we ourselves got to get ourselves caught in financial crises and, and periods of slump and austerity as well. So I'm wondering whether this, uh, whether we move this uh, Milton Friedman model so far that it's it's just become so complicated it's no longer valid. Because if we if we say well okay money supply and the velocity of that money and then we start to add credit into that equation, those three factors are then going to determine uh, the rate of growth for an, for an, uh, an economy, but also in, in inflation in the economy. And as we spoke about last mm. time, that inflation in the economy could be any number of factors which, which are not at all related to uh, to this equation. So does that mean, well, okay, we see inflation going up because of wage push inflation, therefore uh, we need to increase the supply of money unless the supply of credit is low? It, it just gets rather complicated, doesn't it? Well, it gets to be a complex system, and that's a, this is the, what, I'm, what I'm trying to bring mm. about as a form of economic analysis. We have to acknowledge that we don't have an equilibrium system. We have, and we don't have a barter system either. We have a non-equilibrium complex system. And in that world, you've got to tie all these various causal factors together. And what you might think is going to work as a control system, as a direct control, may well have the opposite impact uh, in the indirect sense. If you try to control by, as the government tries to control 
uh, the economy by cutting its spending and the belief that that will reduce uh, its debt level, that cut in its spending could actually reduce GDP by more than it reduces its debt, so the debt, government debt level rises. So you have to have a complex system view of this, and the only way to systematically handle that is not to try to do it verbally or not to try to do it in an, in an equilibrium set of calculations. You've got to have a modelling tool like Minsky which can handle all those feedbacks and calibrate them and see what you get out of it and then test run those policies you're trying in a dynamic setting because, as you say, there are so many causal loops there. Mm. Uh, you can't just focus on one of them. And what the trouble is with most uh, mainstream economics focuses on one or the other uh, leaving out the, the multitude of others and seeing how they feed back on each other. But we do know that if we have too much uh, private debt, particularly uh, in an economy, then that is obviously going to slow down consumption because people are going to back off their spending. Uh, and uh, so that that hits the, the, the right-hand side of that, that, that equation where we start looking at the, the growth of the economy and the rate of inflation. Yeah, that's going to hit it. So, um, And again, I can model that in Minsky. I can show those causal factors getting in into um, into play and you can have periods of you know inflation and deflation booms and busts uh, coming out of that and and the simple idea that you control the economy in the way that Milton Friedman argues is by controlling the rate of government money creation as if that's the only factor right. ends up suffering from the floor of being non-oblique when we live in a very oblique world. Right, but it is right to be in there, though. I mean, I'm taking your point that this complex system and this is a, a straightforward formula, it is a, it is an influence, though. It's a, could, the question is how much influence and what else is going on, but we should still factor it into the, into yeah. the equation. So, look, with the, there's a, question, yep. a question came from Glenn Lurley, who's, uh, um, uh, who said when we first covered this topic, um, he asked whether we should draw a distinction between debt servicing the product productive economy productive economy yeah and what falls into the what he calls the financialized which you'll love this the uh, financialized parasitic economy mm. uh, that produces these ever increasing paper claims on future wealth so when we're looking in your in your modification of the equation when we're looking at the uh, the, the level of debt we should really be looking at the uh, the, the type of debt shouldn't we and, and you know and what that debt is delivering to us yeah, I had a bit of a chat with Lynn just by the, the email feedback on Patreon over this, and he's quite right that if you if you look at where the money actually circulates, that also has an issue on what form of inflation you get. So if you look at QE, for example, uh, quantitative easing was directly creating money for the financial sector by buying bonds off them. And in the case of the UK, it was £200 billion per year worth of bonds. In the case of the United States, $1 trillion per year worth of bonds. So they were selling bonds at face value to the, to the central bank, getting, let's say, in America's case, because it's a round number, $1 trillion worth of cash out of that. The $1 trillion of cash doesn't generate any income, so they therefore had a motivation to spend that cash. And what can they spend the cash on? Because they're financial institutions, they must buy other financial assets. They can't, they can only buy commodities if they're doing, if they're buying, you know, a hedging operation on commodities. So they go and buy other financial assets, which of course drives the price of financial assets. Now, when they do mm -hmm. that, of course, they've got to buy the assets of somebody else. So if they buy the shares of shareholders, uh, then that process drives up the price of shares, which can make the people who sold the shares uh, sell the, sell the, uh, use the money they've got to buy more shares, or they can use that partly to go shopping and you can get the odd Lamborghini purchase and somebody to clean the Lamborghini for you, and you get a dribble of money into the real economy. So QE causes massive inflation in asset prices, but very little change 
in the real economy. On the other hand, if you look at mortgage debt, uh, when you buy a house of somebody who is a, you know, is levered to the hilt and you get even more to buy it off them. So there's an increase in the monetary price of the house. Then that monetary increase, the price writes off the debt of the previous owner and they've now got net cash, which they can spend in any way they like. They again tend to go and buy more houses, but they'll also buy white goods to fill that house. Uh, you know, various things for the trophy partner and so on. And, and that can, lead to more of an overflow of that mortgage debt into the real economy. So that's one reason I think mortgage debt plays more of a direct role in causing uh, economic booms and slumps in the real economy than, than shareholder, uh, the shareholder purchases do. But, yeah, it does actually have an, an impact. Where does the money actually circulate? And I want to basically be able to cover all of that in my Minsky models in the future. So it's looking at um, the the productivity or the marginal productivity then, isn't it, of debt, not treating all debt the same. What is the productivity of that debt? I hate the word marginal productivity, but yes, I do agree with you. That's yeah. the question of where does the money go, what impact does it have in which particular market, and then how much do those markets interrelate with each other. So all these factors are things you can actually put together in a dynamic model and tune properly. And that's what my Portuguese PhD student, Pedro Pratas, is doing with an incredibly sophisticated model of the Portuguese economy, where he's including uh, the existence of finance markets, the existence of, of uh, property markets and so on, and the feed, the government money creation, the, the little is allowed by the Portugal, Portugal's membership of the euro, uh, the level of credit creation so by the private financial sector, what's happening exports and imports, etc. Et You've got to put all that together and you need a dynamic framework to do it. And again, I'm going to tout something like Minsky is the only way to go about it. Uh, and that's why economics has to think about these things, not just monetarily, but also dynamically. Yeah, because it's a complex system, which sort of answers, I mean, Indeed. you've sort of answered a question that it was something that came in on Twitter after the, 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 the first podcast on slow money. At Menganito said, uh, that, well, he called you a debt vigilante, first of all, uh, and said, well, that's uh, not bad. I like that one. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't think he meant it in a positive sense. Uh, he said, oh, uh, dear. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, people acquire debt precisely to spend. No one borrows to put money under a brick. Well, I mean, it, and that, it, your point, if, uh, if it's, if it's something where you're buying something and it's, uh, it's in the consumer space, then that is absolutely right. It's just when it f- falls into the financial sector, might ultimately find its way out. It's just going to take a lot longer. Hence, the speed of money slows. Yeah, but it's also the question of, of, the, of the timing of people doing that borrowing. If you have um, – people tend to get into debt during a boom and have to reapply it during a slump. And you have a – the boom itself causes a change in the distribution of income. So the borrower's expectations about the money they're going to have to service that debt in the future are not going to be met. And therefore, you get cycles and the tendency for that debt to ratchet up over time, which we have seen empirically. So I'm always coming back to saying I, I'm quite happy to be called the debt vigilante because uh, we don't see the impact of that on the long run trend for the economy and the long run distribution of income and the long run effectiveness of money. And those have all come back to bite us very badly in 2008. So I'm, I'm quite happy to be called the debt vigilante because I think we were, in fact, attacked by a debt bubble back in 2008 and not nobody else saw it coming, but certainly very few economists saw it coming. Now, I'm looking at a chart here on a website called thebalance.com, which has looked at the velocity of money uh, this century, since the year 2000, or I think it's 1999, I think, mm. in the United States. 
It starts at 2.09. What they've done is they've taken the GDP and divided it by the M2 money supply. So nothing terribly sophisticated, but that yeah. was gave us 2.09 at the uh, the start of the century. It fell to 1.96 after those attacks on 9-11. It fell to 1.9 when George Bush reduced the capital gains tax in the United States from 20% uh-huh. to 15%. It fell to 1.7 when the Dodd-Frank Act was introduced, making it easier for banks to, uh, making it harder for banks to, uh, to lend quite so much. Well, certainly curtailed them a little bit. So one of these events matter or should we just look at the fact that the general direction is down in fact down to 1.4 so from 2.09 at the start of the century to 1.4 last year i think that's again a combination of the level of debt meaning people are trying to save money to pay the debt by trying to save money they're reducing the rate of circulation of money without and gdp falls as a response and you get a decline in the velocity of circulation of money uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a feedback of that, I would love to get back to the levels when, when the value is actually closer to three, mm. uh, which is the level I use informally in my models. And I think the fact that it's as low as it is is just because we have this massive debt overhang. So, um, and the higher the debt hanger, the, the longer the debt overhang lasts, the, the less people are willing to turn over the money they've currently got and the lower, you know, effectively, productivity of money we get out of the whole economy and are we measuring the right thing i mean could we be could we be saying well okay this is the velocity of money money is slowing if we measured it in another way i mean i'm, I'm just wondering if the de- have we got have we got the definition right because you know what i'm and maybe we have but you know what i'm i'm asking sometimes you can be so hell-bent on looking at something that's that's declining but if you measure it in a different way you might actually find it's fairly stable well in fact there's actually three major definitions of the velocity of money one's related to m M1, either M2, and the other money of zero maturity, which is the one I prefer to use. It's a, it's a concocted. Which is also going down. Which has been going down since yeah. 1980. And I think that's, that's the real, as yeah. I say, it's not just a, a recent set of events that have led to this. It's the increasing level of leverage since the 1980s that have caused that. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So I think we've, we've sort of answered the question, have we? Have we covered enough of this? The fact I, that it is debt that, that's driving this? Have I, we, what have we missed out of this equation? Uh, I think we've I think we've covered the I mean we might not have not satisfied the first uh, uh, poster's comments because I think there's going to be questions about how they define money which differ from me, um, but uh, it's it's showing we've got to consider the, the only way to understand the whole damn thing is put it together in a complex system vision. The reason I can articulate what I have is because that's how I started in economics and I've designed Minsky to take that further and I've learned a hell of a lot by actually designing Minsky about the role of money and its impacts here uh, and that's when, when I'm talking verbally I'm often articulating what I've seen running in one of my models yeah. on this front so we've got to, we've got to make thinking about it as a complex system the, the de rigueur way to think not, not ignore it yeah and in that complex system, if we get to the point where uh, where debt starts to level off and people start to deleverage, does it therefore follow, conversely, that the uh, the, the speed of money, the velocity of money, is going to increase? Yeah. Um, it, well, again, if we massively delever, I think we would find that velocity increasing quite radically, and that's what I'd like to bring about. I think if we actually could abolish. Uh, large parts of the debt using government money creation capability to do it, drastically reduce the debt burden. That would reduce people's desire to uh, hang on to money to try to pay the debts that they no longer have. And with that, we'd have a higher rate of circulation of money coming out of it. Right. And then the government wouldn't need to um, keep on creating quite so much money as a result. That's right. I mean, we could get out of this trap by realising we've got, we're in the trap to begin with. And one of the problems is we don't realise we're in a trap and we're trying to get out of, and we're trying to get out of the symptoms. 
where something we don't understand the cause. And that never successful in medicine, and I don't think it's going to be successful in economics. Right, okay. And the answer to all of that is the cause is it is a complex system, but clearly a, a, a big influence in that is the amount of private debt that's being The influence held. is being left out by mainstream thinking, yeah, which is why they're so wrong. Yeah. All right, very good. Thank you, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, mate. And I love that comment from Glenn Lally that I read out earlier, that the banks that are giving us these loans that are building up this debt are part of, quote, the financialized parasitic economy that produces Produces ever-increasing paper claims on the future wealth, which I think is a good topic, actually, for a future podcast. Maybe we'll do it next time. Just how are we killing productivity, future productivity and growth with loans that uh, were previously paid for there and then? Like, for example, student loans. The government used to pay. Now, your students carry the debt. So what impact is that having on the economy? You can probably think of lots of other examples as well. We'll look at that next time. If you have thoughts on that, get them in very quickly and we'll include your comments on the next podcast. And that is it for this time, the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you again next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.